Tech Your Neck Podcast, UFC Singapore Breakdown. This is the Protect Your Neck Podcast, and I am your host, Dan Tom, analyst and writer for MixedMarshallAnalyst.com. And today, that's right, today is breakdown day. UFC Singapore, we are going to be breaking down from bottom to top, back in the normal fashion. That's right, we're back in full force this week with the full breakdown and the full episode. I know last week was... uh, you know, limited. It was supposed to, be, you know, reminder. It was supposed to be Dan Tom's week off, but the workaholic that I am didn't want to take it off. Wanted to give you something for the Protect Your Neck podcast, and in doing so, I found myself going back at it with the breakdowns again. And even though you know it was limited, it was just a main event write up. Um, uh, did uh, did include my picks there and whatnot, but uh, just got to give a big, quick, and a big, just a big shout out to Daniel Levy for coming on and helping me because again. With it being my week off, I didn't didn't do the full shebang, and uh, that man uh, at Best Fight Picks on Twitter is is pretty darn consistent in more ways than one. So thanks, Daniel, for coming on. We also did top five featherweight wars in that episode. It was great. It was a little bit of an experimental episode. I don't know if I told Levy that, but it, you know, with it again being the week where I, I didn't do a lot of study, I was like, you know, it's going to be a limited preview. Get someone on, but let's see if we can do the top five. And a breakdown in the same one, and it worked out really well with timing and everything, and it was really fun, uh, kind of going back in memory lane there. We uh, so 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 thank you for that. Thank you all for listening, and thank you all for the the kind comments recently. Really, really, uh, really appreciate that uh, on Twitter. Really appreciate the love. And uh, s- sorry, this is coming out late, I guess, because I would have been a little earlier. But this is funny. The excuse is sad because. Uh, I actually just spent an hour trying to get that intro music that we we just got played into because I I've been I'm obsessed with it like I don't know I've been on this like real kick where uh, music really helps 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 not just the writing but then it also helps the uh, you know the whole transcription and all the boring you know uh, stuff behind behind the scenes under the decks of mixedmarshalanalyst.com so uh, the music helps keep me going and as you can tell just by the music selection on this podcast old Dan Tom's taste uh, <laughs> varies varies a lot and uh by the way i do realize that i do speak in the third person yes folks i i get it i i see criticisms people speak in the third person those criticisms are are, are crazy people who don't know they're crazy i know i'm crazy and, and, and in all honesty uh I, I just do the third person thing because it's it adds to the character it's a little showmanship thing come on actually no one said anything about that but uh i do think about that I'm like man i wonder i hope people know that you know it's uh Part of the it's part of the show. Not I don't I don't go around in real life uh, referencing myself in the third person. But anyways, my music though is is what you would think would be from a schizophrenic because it is all over the place as you can tell. And uh, it was some uh, Isidore by the way, Wave Rider. I'm, I'm always good about giving credit you know, for legal reasons, but always good about giving credit nonetheless. I would anyways. Got to support the music. Got to support the artist. I was in a band, a DIY band, pressing our own demos and riding in a van, playing around the West Coast. So I. I uh, I will always uh, support when I can, but but the music was awesome, and I've been on an 80 synth kick probably since uh 
breaking down Jorge Masvidal fights. He started coming out with a Scarface in the last two years. And uh, I remember, you know, I don't know if it was for the Korea, for the Benson Henderson in 2015, but I remember just like, oh, I'm going to, I need to listen to the Scarface soundtrack now while I, while I write, write, write up the summary on <laughs> Masvidal versus, versus, versus Henderson. And uh, since then, I just discovered all this like downward spiral of like 80s synth soundtrack uh, scores. Anyways, neither here nor there. I just wanted to share that. Hopefully you dug the intro because we're going to get right, right the fuck to it. Uh, we're going to start from the bottom as per usual. Got the lines pulled up because I'm ready and prepared. Um, not really, but no, just kidding. All right, we got uh, Lucy Pudilova, minus 130, the favorite on Fight Pass, coming in against Ji Yeon Kim. I know, if you have dyslexia or you're a little racist, you might be just confusing it for the last uh, Korean girl on Fight Pass, though. There actually are some similarities um, to, and I can't even remember the name, wow. I'm, by the way, heads up... Uh, I may be exercising my right as an Asian Pacific Islander that I, you know, have a little parts of both gamuts in there as far as uh, eh, making some inappropriate, <laughs> inappropriate jokes and, and, and joking, joking about my people. But that being said, uh, it's all in love, and uh, this is the Protect Your Neck podcast, and hypocrites, uh, hypocrites can protect their neck too, because uh, I was just bitching about uh, <laughs> Asian racism probably on a, on a podcast or two ago. Anyways, neither here nor there. You, you, you all know not to take me seriously by now. At least I hope. Jesus, I hope. because <laughs> I'll say some shit. All right, but j- jumping into this fight, um, Lucy Pudilova. Yeah, she's a deserved favorite. Um, I, was saving the, I was saying that with Kim, she has uh, similarities to the Korean girl from last card because uh, just the, uh, the aggressiveness and, uh, you know, uh, that's not the stereotype. Although, if you are familiar with Asian stereotypes, if, like, for people who don't know, like uh, Koreans, their stereotype is like, and this is comes from like, I hear like people, like hardcore South Koreans from South Korea, like and they'll say so themselves. Like we're such impatient people. Like if you look at traffic lines, the Koreans hate lines. They're very impatient, and uh, they got themselves a temper. Like Koreans don't don't fuck around. Uh, I forget who it was. Was it? I don't think it was. I think it was. Uh, was Adam Carolla talking about the LA riots, how, you know, everything was going crazy, but the Koreans were the ones going, going to the rooftops and holding ground. You know, they're very, they're aggressive people. I remember in Taekwondo too. I mean, even there's, I mean, just amongst the other Asians, it doesn't matter. It's not, it's not a, it's not an ethnic thing. They're just, they, I mean, they, they had this, this, this edge to them where, you know, even in Taekwondo competing with them, like they, they weren't your friend, man. It's like you, you were, you were competing. They, they, they went Nick Diaz. They treated you like the enemy. And, uh, and uh, that's not a slight or anything. It's just it's kind of more of a testament to 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 the 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 toughness. And uh, this girl's got that man. She, she she's a little bit lacking in technique. Obviously, she's super young. Not a lot of fights under her belt. Um, the thing where she could be live here though, Kim, is where she, if you look at a lot of her fights, for better or worse, she she kind of gets uh, all her opponents to the fence. And you look at. Pudilova's past fights, and even her last fight, despite showing a lot of improvement against Lena Landsberg, which was her actual second fight against Lena Landsberg, um, she still spends a lot of time getting pinned to the cage. So, could easily see the favorite, in other words, Pudilova getting pinned to the cage by uh, <clears throat> by uh, Kim here. And uh, the good thing about Pudilova is she, not only is she getting better at defending takedowns and, and framing, uh, circling off. Um, 
Kim, although she's kind of imposing and can keep fighters there, these fighters were a bit smaller than Pudalova, who despite, you know, she's kind of a gangly, skinny, like, she looks like Bambi, like a newborn deer, like she doesn't have much, like she can barely balance herself, but she's deceptively strong, as we saw in the Landsberg fight, and uh, as I was kind of alluding to, Kim kind of lacking the technique, you know, her hips are way too high and out of position when she's going for takedowns, and again, she's probably being able to muscle and hold these girls against the cage, because, you know, you look at the girls' records, um, you know, uh, Asian girls from that part of the world, they're not exactly the most physically imposing. Uh, she, you know, she's usually the more physical girl in the matchups. Um, and she's not even, you know, that big for the, you know, weight class, what I'm guessing, uh, judging by her measurements. Uh, you know, Kim, she's not that big herself, so. Um, yeah, it's it, it's hard to say, you know. She, she's got some stuff from, from, from Mount, you know. She, she likes the high Mount, and she goes from the triangle armbar or you know uh submissions she could maybe you know wreak some havoc there if she gets that far in Pudalova, but that remains to be seen Pudalova's got a lot of weapons in the clinch and standing that will probably outdo uh kim who doesn't mind throwing i mean she'll step in to space and throw a one two but the defense isn't there and the head's upright i mean but she again she's got that korean scrappiness she's gonna come she's gonna come to come to scrap so um not really playing anything. I think maybe I'll put, I mean, you know, depending on what the line is, how it moves, either play something on the dog to keep it interesting as a degenerate bet, or if you want to do a degenerate bet in the favorite, you know, a by decision prop is still plus money. You can look at that. Uh, let's move on to Inouye versus D. Thomas. Um, yeah, speaking of uh, potentially racist, uh, racist accents there. Watching D. Thomas footage, I did a lot of Filipino commentary, and I grew up with a lot of Filipinos, so it kind of is just like a, 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 a accent that's kind of stuck in my head, and uh, it's just great. I love I love the accent because like the Filipinos will do like their their p's like f, so like packing almost sounds like fucking like, like you know we're packing things, uh, we pack anything, you know we pack uh, we pack animals, we pack products, we pack. We back people if they let us. Sorry, I'm referencing this random uh, packing <laughs> Filipino <laughs> sketch my Filipino friend would play to me. It was just kind of make fun of the accent. It's just I went on this whole. It just kind of took me back listening to, to <laughs> listening to this commentary because I again grew up in a lot of Filipino households there. But uh, anyways, the Thomas comes in at a plus two thirty five dog Naoki in a way. Lots of like about this kid minus two seventy five. Um, <clears throat> it's not that I'm not. I'm actually pretty confident that he could win this, but it is on my avoid, and no one's asked me about it, but I would ask myself, well, why is this on the avoid? I mean, there's actually a lot that could be on the avoid on this fight card, to be honest, especially, although hopefully those, you know, added definitions I put to the recommendations list are helping um, helping the, the casual or newcomer or whatever, what have you, kind of decipher what picks I'm confident in, what picks I'm not so confident in, what picks I suggest, what picks I don't. But yeah, um, this one in a way, and Thomas is on my avoid just because a debutants. I mean, I, I, don't get me wrong, I'm I, I'm the first, and it seems like more often than not to break that rule. Um, again, not a hard and steadfast rule, but a rule that I abide and abide and respect or try to is you know keep your money away from debutants. UFC jitters, you're not going to get the best performance, etc. Intangibles, they're usually taking it out of a weight class without a full camp just to get in the UFC these days, etc., etc. Anyways, so it's usually not good for, for those reasons. Um, and just, you know, 
<clears throat> furthermore, just you know, you look at their competition. I mean, technically, eighty percent of both guys have you know faced guys with quote unquote winning records, but it gets real slim when you if you know what you're looking for and you really kind of start you know diving diving in. Uh, that being said, it was you know these these guys are both young. You know they're they're, they're super young kids, twenty year old kids. So I mean, uh, they should be coming up slow. And when you look at the records aside, when you look at the skill level. Um, it was competitive enough matches that where they should be, you know, giving them the proper tests, seeing what they do. And essentially, you have um, De Thomas, who I equate to as like the Filipino Gilbert Melendez, except he's a southpaw. But very much, you know, um, not afraid to step into space and kind of wing wing one, twos. Got, got some decent hard kicks, although he kind of telegraphs them from the southpaw stance. And just has a decent level change and really drives guys into the cage. Anytime... Guys kind of get near, they're back to the cage. He's he's changing levels or setting up that level change. He's driving in and uh, has good ground upon him. I mean, he'll do good things like, you know, that would come in handy. Like you'll see him pick an ankle and, uh, you know, kind of lift it up. And it looks kind of ugly and awkward, but that, that's sometimes what you have to do. It's, it's lever awareness right there. You, you're isolating slash taking away a weapon of theirs, you know, triangle guard work you just isolate one leg and you know he'll punch right through with the other but then other times when he's actually like sitting and working inside the guard instead of like having your hands on the chest inside the bicep control uh, which would help his ground and pound which is actually pretty good uh to thomas will put his hands on the mat a lot and that's even in his recent bouts like in his last like two 2016 bouts and it's not good against a guy like naoki in a way i mean he black belt karate and uh has kickboxing experience what i'll touch on in a second but I mean, you look at the record, he makes most of his money on the ground. He's not afraid to kind of uh, go to his back or even when he's on a mount, you know, kind of dive and, and dive forward off, you know, to, to an arm bar, transition off to a, uh, a mounted triangle or, or even lose position on a triangle, just kind of diving for it. And, uh, you know, real long legs, kind of you know, real flexible, wiry kid, but, but active, knows what he's doing, knows what he's searching for. And... Uh, you give a you give a long lanky you know guard worker like that. You put your hands on the mat. You're getting overhooked. Now he's locking up whatever kind of high guard from a shoulder pin, a rubber guard variation he wants. His legs just start crawling up like like a like an insect, and then he starts working for submissions. And that'll be, I think you know two or three chains. I wouldn't be surprised if he could catch D Thomas, who even I imagine has to be improving. But yeah, just looking at how they match up on the ground, not good. And on the feet, uh, yeah, Naoki anyway's got that. Uh, got you know some kickboxing experience, which I, which I watched some of that footage, and you know, shows the you know the willingness and competency in Muay Thai as far as the knees, checks, marches. But at at his heart, he has you know reminds me of like kind of early Alexander Volkov, uh, as, far, as far as you know tall, lanky guys that come from the karate base. You know they they still have that even with their lankier frames, they still have that forward in and out kind of a hop to their to their you know their pull and return punch to their striking stances, right? And uh, that's what Naoki Inoue has. He's got a lot of that. You know, and uh, <clears throat> so anytime De Thomas comes forward, it's going to be bad. You know, when you do that against any kind of karate striker traditionally, they're going to kind of check you on your way in, counter you on your way out, etc., you know, and so forth. But De Thomas does show to sometimes strike and, uh, with uh, with his opponent, you know, collide uh, collide strike, so to speak, and that will serve him well. Uh, that's kind of always kind of a rule of thumb in my book when you're facing karate guys. It's, uh, for example, when I scouted for Roy Nelson against Volkov, um, 
you know, especially if there's a movement or, you know, certain disadvantages, right? Um, top of the list, it's probably bad as chasing him, right? Chasing him is always worse. We know that just from watching early Leota Machida fights. There's kind of that same hyperbole where they're just like, oh, he's so deceptive and crafty. All these, he's awkward. All these kind of, uh, you know, um, trigger words or whatever words, uh, that they, 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 you know, even the best commentators would kind of insert in a place uh, when when talking about karate fighters. But one thing they did know: okay, you don't you don't come after him. Okay, check. Um, out countering him, that that's a little you know uh, lower on the list as far as more or higher on the list, and if the way depending on the way you phrase it, as far as what's a little more practical, you know, if you can find a way to counter them. But still, it's kind of hard to counter the counter guy, right? So a lot of times the rule of thumb is, at least in my opinion, is you know coming from a karate base and whatnot is when you you had to collide strikes with those karate guys when they come in because again um i believe it was on uh i don't think i explained it on this podcast i actually think i explained it on half the bot battles when I, we recapped uh, ufc phoenix on, on on there but uh we were talking about sergio pettis i think me and daniel were about kind of those karate point fighters going in and out and the criticism of the low hands and the reason for it and there's actually kind of a phys a weird kind of physics to it where you know i, I tell people that um, just do this experiment. You don't have to be a, a seasoned striker, but hold your hands up like you're supposed to, and, and then start, you know, kind of slowly shadow boxing, moving around, throwing punches. Okay, that that should feel normal. That's fine. Now try hopping in and out, um, and then hopping in and out with punching, with your hands up. You're gonna find that your hands naturally are going down, just like when you're kicking. Your hands are naturally swinging to counterbalance yourself. You don't realize how much your hands go out to counterbalance yourself and how effective it is, hence why you naturally do it. Um, So that's why uh, it's not just kind of a choice. It's not like, oh, I want to be the karate guy in this. I'm going to keep my hands down and not evolve with the sport. It's not so much that. It's more just kind of a physics thing. It's really just hard to do, you know. and uh, and so a lot of times when you just crash striking distance with these guys, you know, if you're not as technical, you're not as athletic, you're not as fast, you don't have as good setups, you don't have as good footwork, you don't have as good counters. Well, you can still hit those guys despite losing all those check boxes if you crash distance when they're striking. And that's kind of a risky proposition. You better you have to be disciplined and you know throw your head off offline and you know to the side less probable to get hit depending on your opponent's repertoire. And yeah, yeah, wing with commitment. But uh, that'll probably be De Thomas's best shot. I don't think it happens though. I think it doesn't take long before they get into a scramble. In a way, finds a submission. A little bit of high lines either way to be confident in a dog or favorite. Oh, sorry for the hiccups. Considering that they're both debutants, so on my avoid list. Uh, next fight also on my avoid list. My only official dog pick: uh, Russell Doan and Quan Ho Quak. Oh, Dan, you still high off two twelve and the Hawaiian thing? I am still high off two twelve, but no, it doesn't have anything to do with the Hawaiian thing. I mean, if you just look at Russell Doan's record, the four losses, you're like, wow, he should be a bigger underdog than Quan Ho Quak. Who, um, you know, I, I was not necessarily high on because I had the same criticisms before as I had about the same guys we just talked about before, you know. I don't think uh, uh, the competition's as good or this or that, and but, but but there's just a lot of potential to work with Quan Ho Kwok. The problem is he's so selective with how he shows it. Even though he's not um, big for the division, he uh, it, it's like he is. It's, like he's, it's almost like he's got the Tyrone Woodley effect where he's not sure how much he knows he can get up, 
and take down and strike and explode and knock out guys when he you know uh, when he needs to. Even though if you look at his record, it actually really doesn't happen that as much as um, lately. Um, but <clears throat> and I'm not even looking at his records. I haven't pulled up anybody's records yet. I just have betting lines, so if I mess up on things here or there, I apologize. But um. Yeah, it, 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 it's like there's this weird energy management that Quan Ho Kwok's doing. Like he's 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 worried about getting tired. He's only throwing in ones and twos, and it was so awesome to see him go on a flurry. You know, knowing that he was down on the hole. You know, when he came out strong, at least for the first minute around three against Brett Johns, who, you know, very underrated. Not by you know UK the you know, you know UK Irish and European all those people around those scenes have been more aware of this guy. And hats off to y'all, but uh. Yeah, he got on more of the hardcore and casual radars his last time against Quan Ho Kwok. Nevertheless, Quan Ho Kwok's problems were still there. Um, as far as he can do everything, it's just he, he's not game over territory, nor doing things effectively enough, nor even putting a volume effective or ineffective enough to kind of um, make a good account for him on the scorecards. And now he's going to be subjected to westernized judging where he's going to probably pay for those habits much more. Whereas Russell Doan, um, he throws, he takes down and, and grapples more than he should. And it costed him. It costed him in his career when, when you go and look at it. Um, but you can also, again, those four losses, it depends on how you look at it too. I mean, uh, Iri Alcantara is deceptively, you know, Real underrated, and in this last stint, Yuri has had toward this. It's later in his career, but Yuri's had this last streak of real success. You know, you look at Yuri's record. Russell Doan faced him in that in that winning streak, and in Brazil. And even though I think the way judging, at least in the new rules now, um, Russell Doan has less of a case for losing that uh, losing that um, decision to to Yuri Alcantara. A lot of people, including the commentators, thought Doan could have done enough to. Uh, uh, Win it based off takedowns and control. Now, even though he didn't get as much damage or as much strikes landed, the takedowns and control, especially the way fights were judged back in 2014, there um, should have been enough. But it was also 2014 in Brazil where uh, steroids and sketchy judging were at an all-time max. So, so yeah. I mean, again, it wasn't. Again, not. not I'm not saying he should have won or anything like that. I'm just saying it was. It was much more than the record reflects. Then you have fight with Jared Sanders was super close and he should have won that, but just displayed the most terrible fight IQ and kept grappling and giving up bad positions after almost hurting Jared Sanders almost every exchange and then still taking some good positions, but overstaying his welcome, allowing Jared Sanders to reverse and steal close moments at the end of rounds, which got Jared Sanders rounds. And, uh, and yeah, so again, it was a real close fight where it was just a couple decisions away from, you know, uh, from winning. Uh, you know, apparently, says he learns his lesson, doesn't come back for a whole nother year, fights Pedro Munoz, who's, you know, no joke, comes in and looks like he made the, made the Max Holloway transition, right? He comes in southpaw and is lighting Munoz up, bloodies him up. He's countering, colliding, and hitting him off the offense. You know, liver kicks to the body, punches to the head, everything. And, uh... Then, in a scramble, just hesitates for one second, and Munoz hits a beautiful, not a guillotine, but a, a boa choke. Like a boa, like those uh, burlesque dancers or whatever, would, you know, those little furry things. That, that That's what your arm represents. That's why it's called a boa choke. And, uh, 
And it was really cool because, you know, Munoz entered on it, you know, from standing, whereas the way, the only way I've really seen this choke and taught or have it done to me and, and attempted it with very little success is when you're kind of in turtle and you're riding either, usually you're not riding directly behind them like a homoerotic leapfrog or the ambiguously gay duo, you're usually kind of just off to one side, right? And you can kind of switch off to, you know, a, you know, a waist ride or a punch or, you know, put a hook in. And a lot of times when you put a hook in, obviously you're always going to put the hook in that's kind of your near side hook, the side nearest to you. And when you have that, guys are immediately going, okay, what's on the radar other than the neck now? But is is their other side, their other hip? They don't want to let your other hook in because then – you know, you're saddled up for a ride that, that that's not going to benefit them. So knowing that their radar is, is on defending that hook, you can get your hook that's already in kind of tightened up to their rib cage and almost instead of on their hip, you can kind of start sliding your thigh slash hook that's already in up toward their armpit. And that's going to kind of isolate what you're going for, their neck and this choke, and it's going to kind of subtly push their shoulders into their neck, which is probably already going into their neck if they're playing the turtle position correctly and crunching their shoulders to protect their neck from a choke. So again, you're on the, you're, they're, they're in turtle. You're riding from a back kind of rear 45 side there. You've got your one hook in, your near side hook. You start kind of choking up on it. And as they're worried about defending that other hook from the other side, you reach across, over, around their neck, down and through to where your choking hand is now coming through the armpit, the armpit on which you were choking up on with that near side leg. Attach your other hand, and yes, in your kind of what looks like a guillotine grip, now not just has their neck, but also has their arm coming through, flailing out um, like a boa, hence the boa joke. And you can drop down at that point and uh, go for the choke. I always fail on the choke, but the great part is, is that hook turns into a butterfly, uh, turns into a butterfly hook when you go to your back for this choke, and you can use that to sweep them because again they don't have a post because their arm, hence the boa choke, their arm is trapped inside the choke. They don't have a post to that side, so if your opponent does not have a post to a certain side, well you go ahead and roll them to that side. And uh, if you're familiar with the term cow catcher, you, to, to kind of reinforce your insurance, your choking arm kind of switches off to an underhook. Uh, not a traditional underhook, but it goes to a cow catcher, and that helps turn them over. And you can kind of go for a regular guillotine from there, just go mount and start punching them. It's great. Anyway, sorry for that random tutorial, but that, that's what that choke is. Everybody always refers to that choke. And it's a real sweet when you see, uh, I think, Dennis Bermudez gets hit by it. Ricardo Lamas does, does it, right? There's, there, there's the... Uh, I think Krylov did it recently. No, 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 no. Krylov got it done to him by uh, Serkinov. Yeah, as a boa choke. Um, all right, anyways. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> I lost track. Okay. And then his fourth loss, Mirsad Bektik, prospect, 145, literally a week's notice. So again, you can kind of, you know, there's a narrative and a viewpoint there to these losses that four losses aren't good. I'm not saying that they are, but they weren't as bad as they sound. And again, MMA doesn't care about four losses in a row or no losses in a row, four wins in a row. It doesn't matter. It's all about the matchup. And Quan Ho Kwok, even though he has good sprawls, athletic can get up, he is going to be having to work for it a lot against Russell Doan because if Russell Doan's bad habits come in where he goes away from stand-up, it'll actually probably serve him well because, you know, I see the only way losing is Quan Ho Kwok hitting one of his, you know, 
uh, Taekwondo uh, velocity kicks on him, but Doan's a big, um, a big bantamweight who's never been stopped, you know, um, and you know he's only thirty. He's not getting that old. This, this you can make argue. You know he's in his physical prime, and you you listen to the guy. He's kind of a wild cat, cat up in, uh, upstairs, and. If that is to a complete detriment of no return, then he will lose this fight. But if that's just him, just kind of his personality slash him being immature, well, sometimes what comes along with the physical prime is a little bit of maturity too. And there could be hints there of that in the sense of maturity of a style, but I think it's more of a psychological thing with Don. Either way, if he comes in sharp showing new improvements, I think his stand-up's good enough to, if not uh, outdo Quok, outdo him on the scorecards. Um... I think he's got a good enough chin, and if he does get stunned, he knows how to recover, shoot for takedowns. I think he gets those takedowns. I think Juan Ho Kwok gets up, but he tires himself in the process and could also get his back taken in the process. Against the fence, Quan Ho Kwok does a good job of not turtling out. He puts his back to the fence like a cheese grater, as I like to say, to prevent it, but, but, but anything comes out in the open. He's in scramble territory with Doan, and Doan is an excellent scrambler. You know, Again, to his detriment, but this isn't a matchup where it's going to be to his detriment if he goes to his old habits. So old habits, new habits. Fight to fight, some improvements and intangibles included. Um, I like Doan here. I took a shot at him, odd on him, even though it's on the fight to avoid. Because again, I mean, this can't feel too confident either way, I don't think. But in a fight where I came in thinking, okay, that's right. Uh, you know, Quok should be a slight uh, favorite. Hmm. No, no, it's on the avoid list, on the avoid list and, 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 and taking a shot on Doan. Okay, um, next fight as I log in. Wow, you're only three fights in, Dan. You just beat the fuck up. G Liang versus uh, Camacho. Camacho, just dude who seems like he's been on the circuit forever, should be like 40, but he's not. He's actually got a jiu-jitsu background, black belt, some accolades, but he just... Fights the same way for years on end, fighting, taking damage. Um, pretty durable, pretty recoverable, got a lot of heart, but just takes too much damage and doesn't have the best chin in the world, although pretty durable considering he's usually fighting outsized opponents. He's only 5'9". He's not even a big 5'9 uh, for a lightweight. And again, despite being young, got some... Got some, got, gathered some some fights and some miles within those fights to where it just seems like he's like fuck it I'm just I'm fighting welterweight now and he like already hit that like I'm 38 kind of thing except he's 28 so it's weird uh, but he's gonna be going against you know Jiling Liang or whatever but uh, who I, I I like to just say has has retard strength and uh, I know I always use that and keep saying and I always apologize that I'm not gonna use that and keep using it, but I, I have to. I have to, man. And it's funny because he trained at Extreme Couture for a bit. And uh, Jing Liang uh, trained with a buddy of mine, Montel Williams. No, not the talk show guy, but yeah, his name is actually Montel Williams. And uh, BCG, old school. Montel's my boy, though. Good friend. Uh, pro fighter, not sure if, what he's doing right now as far as pro fighting. I think he's focusing on jiu-jitsu and stuff. But real talented kid. But, he, you know, he... Uh, Always in the pro practices, so he uh, did some rounds with uh, Ji Liang, and uh, you know he was talking, he was telling me kind of how it went. I'm not gonna you know give too many specifics, but I will say in the, in the conversation, because uh, uh, Mont Montel's a really good grappler too, really good, like grapples with some some names. But uh, I was like, so man, tell me, uh, you know, uh, Lee was he 
when I see him, he seems like he has retard strength. And he goes, oh, my God, yes, that's the word I was going to use. Dude, this guy had such retard strength. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. Because you see it even like that on Anton Zafir fight. Uh, Lee, like, gets this reversal while Zafir is in side control. It's, like, literally pure power. Like, he does, like, kind of the guillotine, the principle I was talking about, where you do a head and arm type of guillotine kind of a grip. And, you know, again, if you take away that posting arm you, and can get some leverage to get a guy that way, then you can sweep him, except... Lee shouldn't have had the leverage to throw him that way, and he literally just throws Anton that way, uh, gets on top later on, and knocks him out. Anyways, I took that prop here, Lee, by TKO plus 110, took a shot on it. Um, not going to lie, I may have Lee in one parlay, but I avoided it for that, Just that's what that, and that's why the prop's there, because um left him out of the parlay stuff, just because, uh, yeah, parlay stuff hits, Lee's bonus. Um, some of the parlay stuff doesn't hit, then, you know, hopefully Lee then bails me out, right? That's kind of how these things are balanced, at least in my head. And, of course, yes, what fits the analysis first and foremost, because value can be tricky, as you can chase losing bets. All right, next fight. Oh, by the way, yeah, Lee, Lee, yeah Lee's out overpriced too, minus 420, and then plus 335, come back on Camacho. I didn't say that. Next fight, um, first one on... Oh, wow, he's back up to minus 500. He was, he was lowering in the 400 range. So I put him on there uh, as far as, you know, parlay fodder, even though it's pretty high for me usually. But as far as guys that I put on my list, I don't, I'm trying to not put debutantes, obviously, but even like prelim fighters or fighters that should be on the prelims, if you know what I'm saying, not to be disrespectful. They're on the UFC. They're all fighters. They deserve our respect. That being said, pieces for parlay and serious bets, straight plays, juice plays, all those things I feel like need to be on high-level guys. Don't get me wrong. The matchup is usually where you make your money. I know that's where I get my angles from, especially from the analysis angle. It is all about the matchup. I know I just said that. But at the same time, as far as rules of thumb to kind of reinforce and, and keep you as, as far as checklists, you know, Make sure you know uh, you're 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 not crazy. You're going too far off the trail. That is one of the good rules. Again, high-level fighter because we've seen them a lot. There's a big sample size to draw from. We're gonna know if they're consistent or not, and uh, they're usually gonna be matched with somebody who is also consistent or around that same level. So, if you know what you're looking for and you're doing the work, you should be getting more accurate reads. In other words, on paper, again. There's always a there's always a bad matchup and there's always taking a shot on that. I'm I'm all about that. I, I do it myself. Um, yeah, Yuta Sasaki plus four hundred, uh, Scoggins minus five. Um, yeah, man. I, 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 no no secret. I've been real high on Scoggins, but Scoggins like like Doan times ten because I think he's more more potential and more skilled than Doan, but same problems as I think it's a psychological thing with Scoggins. You know, the weight, the preparation, I don't think it was that good. He gave up on it. But at the same time, I'm not a big fan of weight cutting and looking at how he looked much more filled out and against Pedro Munoz. Um, man, I, I almost didn't want to see him come back to flyweight. So I had my reservations, but seeing all reports were that his weight cut was going good. Even though he looks drawn out like a skeleton, even he, he always kind of looks like that. Even the aforementioned 135 version we just saw, he still doesn't look like the most healthiest kid. And he still kind of has that weird uh, Tom Cruise uh, stout torso frame that doesn't match his arms or body. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how much we can look into that. He looks good for what it's worth. This is kind of a 
not a do or die, but a guy with that much potential, his spots, his F-ups, because he's only lost one, but it, it almost essentially feels like he lost two because he really dropped the ball with uh, against Uncle Creepy back in a UFC 201 July last year. Remember that. Um, it's a failed cut. But, yeah, you know, it looks like he's going to make weight. It says he's already on weight. Weigh-ins are less than 24 hours from this being recorded. Sasaki has almost looked worse as he's been making weight. He's getting older. He's older than Scoggins only by a couple of years, but... Again, he's in those entering the prime 28 years old-ish years where the body frame starts to jump. He looked more like a, a skeleton as well weighing in. That said, his intensity has seemingly grown. His confidence has grown. But then again, he wasn't going against the best strikers. And, you know, Wilson Hayes, a very short guy. He had a ton of reach on. Guy doesn't own a knockout to his name, doesn't have the heaviest hand. So, of course, Osaki was going to look much better in that matchup against Scoggins. I think he's going to be getting hit, hit with kicks excuse me, punctuated kicks and whatnot. And I know, Dan, I was like, what are you thinking? Um, hey, this, 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 you know, this is flyweights and he's karate point striking. A lot of his fights want the decision. It's not like he's rocking guys left and right. Why do you think he's um, going to get the finish or, you know, this or that? Well, I do think he's going to get the finish, yes. Um, you know, it's been tougher competition both tough durability and skill-wise as he's gotten higher. So most of Scoggins' you know, TKOs were early on in his career. But both these guys don't have a lot of decisions. Sasaki's a very do-or-die fighter. Um, you know, And when you put together both their fights, I think it's like 40-plus 40, 40, 40 fights, 25% of them only have gone in decision. So in other words, what I'm edging at is that if you don't agree or it's too high for your price, I don't blame you, especially now. If you didn't get the opener or you didn't get the dip or it's just too high either way for you. Okay, cool. I get it. For Scoggins, um, a hedge, which almost made my prop list, but uh, it didn't. But I'll tell you all here, it's a personal one. I did a hedge, minus 115. Fight does not go the distance because if you all aren't as high as Sco on Scoggins as I am, then you know that the one way Scoggins is going to lose his fight is how he loses fights thus far is just just mental lapses he's he's he arguably won the dustin ortiz fight which he, he lost by split decision we all know dustin ortiz has a knack for doing that to guys and taking those types of decisions right um so he really only lost the two fights that he lost were just mental flops where he's he was winning both fights He was beating pedro munoz in the feet and starting to sway some momentum out pointing him you know nothing too serious i don't think he was gonna get pedro out of there by any means you know i think don was doing better than Scoggins in that sense against Pedro Munoz, but it was doing well, and then gets caught mental lapse with a choke. Well, Sasaki, most of his wins by chokes, coming out on tops and scrambles, taking a back, you know. And when you scramble, especially a wrestler, you know, you're, 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 even though Scoggins isn't turtle or tripod for long, there are those brief instances. Yeah, I, I could see totally how Sasaki could win. So minus 115 seems like a nice bet because I think Scoggins is going to win, but. Although the odds and projections don't agree with this, I, I don't think it's going to be by decision. I think he's going to TKO him. Maybe even submit him if he hurts him uh, and just is following up on the ground and something opens up. I could see Scoggins, Scoggins doing that, but he's got good enough takedown defense, and this is the time to prove the doubters wrong. This is the time to show the discipline. This is the time to show the upgrades. He has all the talent. He's had all the talent. Um, he's had the trajectory. Uh, he already paved the way for himself after that crazy, beautiful post-fight. From that Ray Borg fight, which I was at, and I totally was I'm high on Ray Borg. Was high on Ray Borg there, so I, I was I, that totally blew me away. But yeah, respect to Scoggins since then, paid much more closer attention since then. Feel like he gets it and justifies the price there. Also played him small, put a little sprinkle. You get plus money by TKO. Uh, 
Rolando Dai versus Alex Caceres. Um, this almost made the avoid list. I literally avoided it. Didn't play anything personal. Alex Caceres minus 325, which is part of the reason why I avoided it, and plus 265 on Dai. Uh, Dai's got those intangibles, those attitude intangibles, where he could come in here. We've seen Alex Caceres take some damage that's kind of disturbing, uh, you know, from, from in-ring concussions and stuff. And, you know, no discredit, even though he kind of got washed once that second round came around. We, we know that Jason Knight is someone to take serious, obviously. Someone's going to be around in the division. So no shame on that. And even though I seemingly tear on Yair Rodriguez, there's no shame on that, too. He put up a great fight. Um, he, he should win this. He should be favored. And I probably would play him if it was in the minus 190 to max minus 225. You start getting 3-1. to one, No way. Rolando Dai comes from a, his dad's a famous boxer, one of the famous, more famous knockout boxers. Not as famous as Pacquiao, but I mean, you know, on the short list when you start looking at guys past that that comes from the Philippines. Pardon me, I don't have the name in front of me, and it's a different name than his because he ended up taking his mother's maiden name. Troublesome childhood, even though he's young. So I mean, I don't know how long that troublesome lasted, but nonetheless, MMA, like many, helped him straighten his ways, and. Uh, <clears throat> And he's got heavy hands. He stalks. Doesn't throw enough for my liking. Again, he's going to lax volume, but can counter. Can throw offensively. Um, you know, puts his hands inside the biceps when he's inside a guard. Uh, looks like he can scramble when he needs to. But, you know, not sure. He's only taking this fight on two weeks' notice. Um even though it doesn't seem to bother him. This guy's just got this crazy attitude and tangible, and I always, always warn about that. So I avoided it. Um, that line gets any... I am not usually this guy, but that line gets any higher. I may take a shot on it. I'm usually not that person. Again, um, no value in a losing bet. Is that, that's the saying, right? And um, and yeah, but but I, I actually... This is the kind of fight where I would do that. Next fight, uh, if it was, again... Same, same, same thing. If it was, if, if the line was lower where it should be, and if you know, again, uh, these lines were lower. I'm just late to the party recording this, late to the party betting as I usually am. I just like to wait toward, even if the analysis is in early, you shouldn't bet toward weigh-ins, or at least till you have some kind of. Thankfully, social media gives us a peek projections of how their weight, their fight week, their camp has gone by social media the week of. Um, but with cards like this, man. By the way, everybody on the Max Beck train, and I'm wishing you all the best, because because most of uh, most of them I'm seeing is all all people I respect, all the sharps who, who get their study ahead of time. Those are the people who should be Max Betting. But unfortunately, y'all know what I'm talking about. Y'all are so good, people. Y'all be moving lines, and people pile on like it's those those trains in India where you have people hanging and falling off and. <laughs> <laughs> and all that shit. And, and that's what the lines look like on this card, which is weird because this is like, a, a, to my opinion, a bad betting card. You have low level MMA, all these reasons why we should be staying away. But again, look at me. I'm here doing this podcast. Y'all are loading the lines. It's the degenerates that we are. Rain, hail, sleet or shine. I probably got that wrong, but we will be here and gaming, right? Okay, anyway, so I'm not hating. I'm, I'm, I'm right there with y'all, but, but it, it's funny, so... Ah, before I side tangent too much, the line I was setting up and was talking about that is like the the Caceres die line is Walt Harris at minus three forty five as the favorite versus Cyril Asker plus two eighty five. Cyril Asker, I don't expect uh, a lot of y'all know this, but my MMA latest fan to know this though. But uh, Cyril Asker always reminds me of Stephen Housen 
which uh, has been hitting the kettlebells lately. So maybe it is him under disguise. He's just not telling us anybody. He's just he's just uh, running websites by day and, and, and fighting and training for UFC by night. But that being said, i got to go against Surreal Asker here. Despite his, his very funny post-fight speech where I forget he uses in his French accent. You like the big show? Did I bring the big show? Well, I want the big, big butts. Or whatever he said. It was, it was funny. He just was trying to endear himself to the American audience in Utah. And it was a big, happy French guy. Um, who I thought got killed by Jared Jared Cannon here, um, who you know did his shot, southpaw shifting, which seemed to give problems for Asker, which is aside from the sheer size and athletic disadvantage. Well, he'll be out against Walt Harris, but Walt Harris a southpaw who knows how to strike. We're seeing him even the former Golden Gloves boxing champ put together knees and kicks off his punches as he finished Chase Sherman. A very tough, durable Chase Sherman his last time out. So, yeah, I like Walt Harris here a lot. Everything is pretty juiced up. The only thing I played, I did play a juiced up line. I think maybe it was like minus 150 or something on, a, on a inside the distance for Walt Harris there. Because I think he gets it done inside there. Not going to spend a lot of time on that one. Next, and the last on the prelims. Is Takanor Gomi versus John Tuck? Gomi looks just drunk, blue-haired, and you know, as a naturally jowly, bloated-faced Asian dude, he's jowly and more bloated-faced than ever, man. I don't know, I don't know what kind of shape he is in coming into this one. Um, he looks like he's just getting drunk and taking selfies with weird faces, uh, and not as cool as Dong Young Kim, who, who who we'll get to in the second half of the podcast here. But uh, but yeah, um, John Tuck minus three twenty. If you played him early, I don't blame you. Um, but it's tough, man. It's tough to play. You know, Tuck's more. I I I, I play Tuck. He's but he's more, more in the second tier. When I cause again, this is this forced me to degenerate. But I got the, I got like two five man parlays in each house going. So I'm I, I'm I'm degenerated up. I mean, a five man one five man parlay is degenerate status in MMA. In general, but in the five mans, uh, you can see some John Tuck in at least one of them, um, probably. And uh, yeah, because he's that kind of second tier guy with like Walt Harris, who should win the fight, but the price is inflated, and these guys are kind of inconsistent. You, you know, John, John Tuck's good; he looks like a world beater, but then he just kind of will let fights get away from him. We've seen that happen, even though he arguably should have won. You can make cases that he could have won his last two split decision losses. Um, let it get away from him, you know. Had had his guys hurt and let it get away from him, and uh, you know looks in great shape. Um, coming into this one, uh, still working, you know, working a lot at Kings from what it looks like, which is always a good sign, you know, with with uh, Rafael Cordero and Benil Daryush, who he's you know kind of befriended there. So he should win this fight, but man, he he's got a great chin, but man, he's still he'll still put himself there to get hit, even though his defense has gotten better. And that's the one thing Gomi can do. With that being said, I, I I gotta imagine John Tuck, whether he's winning or even if he finds himself losing the exchanges, I gotta imagine he changes the level, and unfortunately takes the legend Taka or Gomi out. All right, on that note, my butt is gonna take a break, and when we come back, we are gonna break down the main card UFC Singapore right here on the Protect Your Neck podcast.
here on the Protect Your Neck podcast for the UFC Singapore main card breakdown. Before I get to that, though, I saw a movie. Oh, man. Just wanted to get some feedback on Twitter. I think I posted something, but if not, I just, want, just wanted to get this out. Danton doesn't get to see many movie, very many movies lately, so now when I see him and they suck, it, now it actually bothers me. Like I was like the biggest optimist. I could always you know find some silver lining on why you know a movie was good or not. But man, I I watched Southpaw. And Dan Tom, you always talk about Southpaws. You should probably like it by default. You're right, I should, but I didn't. But I didn't. It was fucking awful. Uh, it it just no, it not really awful. It was just. <sighs> Is everything I hate about writing, the biggest thing I hate, especially in screenwriting, is is setting something up without paying it off. You're putting the audience, you're taking us on the journey, I'm willing to commit, I'm willing to sit on the journey, and not only do you not pay it off, but you make that journey painful. Not only do you make it painful, you make it uncreatively painful. Now, I'm a guy that appreciates when you get the loser at the end, the person doesn't win, you know what I'm saying? Like, I love that. That was that was Rocky, right? The classics have that. You don't just have you know a Dan Tom dark taste in film or anything. Like, I, I don't have to have the good guy win, but you have to have, you know, if it's a war movie like Black Hawk Down, it's, you know, good actors, good action, yeah, 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 but you have to have downtime, there was no downtime, you know, you have a lot of negative, you have to have a little bit of positive, you have to keep the audience in there, you have to keep the characters in there, and there was, like, no positive in that movie for, like, the first hour and a half, to the point where it's, like, it's almost comically negative, and I'm not trying to give any spoilers away, but it's just, like, it's one thing after another when you're, like, really, like, we've already established what the issue is, who the characters are, We've established who's the bad guy. We established who we're supposed to feel bad for. We're established who we're supposed to feel indifferent to. You've established all these things over, and you beat beat a dead horse. Beating a dead horse is a pet peeve, and if you're gonna beat a dead horse, at least pay it off. And uh, spoiler, if you don't want to hear any further, there'll be a little bit of spoiler in this this last part. And we'll get into the breakdown. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. One second. But just fast forward like a minute or, or, or two if you don't want to hear the spoiler to the end. So it drags you on this fucking ride. And I'm, okay, I'm in. Now we're at the, you know, the final. So the spoiler is, okay, Jake Gyllenhaal's wife gets shot. And there's no, you like, he gets fucked every way. He loses his money somehow in like two, two and a half days. Somehow all the money he made. Anyways, but all, all this bad shit happens to him. And like every, like, the, the, you, you, uh, you know, he loses his kid. Like everything just bad. The, the kid hates him. They show every, like, proceeding and every check-in with the social services. And the judge shits on him. The civil worker shits on him. Like everything bad keeps happening. And... There's no follow up. There's no police. Like they follow up everything when it comes to Jake Gyllenhaal's character. No follow up on who fucking murdered the wife. No follow up on uh, on any on any of that. They even like when, when on the murder scene, they even do a quick edit, like a quick clever edit on on a passing of the gun to kind of put doubt in your head, but also kind of plant a seed. You know, oh, who really did it? There's some payoff. They should even show one character show a little bit of remorse on his face. Like there's seeds planted for a payoff here. Uh, through this horrific thing they put the audience and, and family through. And that's only the beginning of the movie. The, the bad shit keeps happening after that. I'm, I'm, I'm not even touching that shit. And uh, so it comes to the end where the guy who fucking probably killed, or at least someone in him and his entourage are responsible for the whole his wife dying, uh, the end boxing fight. And by the way, there's no mention of being Southpaw this whole thing. Uh, he he's an orthodox fighter, so I'm like, what the fuck's going on? And it comes to the boxing fight, and they finally give 
positivity, but they do it in the cheesy way possible. Yes, Jake Gyllenhaal wins the boxing fight. And there's no mention. There's not even like a shit talk like, yeah, motherfucker, like nothing. There's no closure. Like, I'm sorry. There's not even like a, you know, the UFC you see in the background. Like, hey, man, good fight. Not that they should be because he murdered his fucking wife. But there's nothing. It just shows the guy knocked out and it shows him kind of maybe there's like a, a quick second where he's like kind of sitting on a stool shaking his head like, man, I can't believe a loss. And that's it. There's no payoff. He's cheering like, what the fuck? Your wife's not coming back. Like your money, your bro, like all these issues of like a two hours of compounded problems that you just shove down the audience's throat. All's forgiven because you want a fucking boxing match. And... The only payoff was the stupid movie's namesake because, again, he's not Southpaw the whole time, but he wins the boxing match by just shifting a Southpaw and throwing an uppercut. <laughs> and they make it, like, the biggest deal possible, and they explain almost shifting in the in the collective movie tie-up montage. And I'm just like, as somebody who appreciates technical aspects, Southpaws, and all that stuff, what the fuck? I give, I give two shits about that. What the fuck? That doesn't mean nothing. This guy's wife is dead, all right? I don't need a Southpaw. She said, you fuck it. This guy's wife is dead. All right, anyway, sorry. That is my rant. I hate fucking movies that don't pay shit off. You know, just like uh, Spider-Man. Remember this happened? Spider-Man, the, the first one with the Peter Parker or whatever. He he he, he fucking, his Uncle Ben dies, right? He, he's a pro wrestler and uh, he gets screwed over by the paycheck, you know, by the pro wrestling place. And then the pro wrestling place gets held up and he has a chance to stop the robber. But he's like, hey, you know what? You guys didn't pay me. I'm not going to stop the robber. Irony is that robber kills Uncle Ben. Oh, no. And Spider-Man, for the only time in that series or comic books, for all we know, actually kills somebody. This is the one person he kills uh, is the person who kills his Uncle Ben. And he's chasing them down. And the guy doesn't even know he's being chased half the time. He thinks he's being chased by the cops. He doesn't. He has no clue. Like, Peter Parker or anything is there to where he gets in a dark fucking warehouse. And <laughs> Peter Parker fucking... I don't even think he knows, like, anybody's there. Next thing you know, like, Peter Parker just shows up with his mask on, pushes him out of the window, and the guy dies. Like, he doesn't even go, like, you killed my Uncle Ben. Or stop, hold him by the shirt, pull his mask off, go, see me? I let you go? Well, you know that guy you killed? That was my Uncle Ben. None of that. Like, there was no payoff there. Parker, what the fuck, man? You just killed a guy you didn't even know? He probably was, like, stopping to tie his shoes and shit. Anyways, so it's just little things like that, like pet peeve Danton, where he just he's a side tangent. I'm not going to make this podcast any longer. Let's get to the main card. Kicking off is a potential welterweight war. We have Rafael Dos Anjos, Tarek Safadine pulling the odds up right now. Um, yeah, Rafael Dos Anjos also recommended parlay piece, and we have him as a prop by decision, minus 105. Um you can get that for that's the one juiced uh, juiced up uh, juiced up uh, prop that I listed and um, yeah I, I put him in a healthy amount of my parlays I just feel like this is a stylistic match that should suit him I think RDA is going to run into problems with the size at welterweight but not in this matchup Safadine's not a very big welterweight stylistically they match up very well um, and I think RDA is going to have a speed and definitely a volume advantage stylistically which will bode well for the scorecards pace of the fight. Uh, and, and just, you know, I love Safadine, but he operates in his, in, 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 in Dos Anjos' kill zone, you know, between the inner black octagon line, excuse me, and the fence. And that's bad when you're facing Rafael Dos Anjos. That's really bad. Um, that's where he gets his takedowns. That's where he unloads his combinations. That's where he feels most confident. Um, that's where he's striding. So 
there are just a lot of things right off the bat, you know. Tarek Safadine owned two against Southpaws, UFC Southpaws, you know, his last two losses. Um, Rick Story and, you know, Dong Young Kim. Again, he wasn't blown out of the water or anything, but but still, I just, I don't like this match stylistically for Tarek. Um, he's only 30, which, you know, surprises me. You know, he's two years younger than Dos Anjos. Well, it's kind of hard to tell how old uh, Frankenstein Dos Anjos, or Frankenberry, how old he, how old he is. <laughs> By the way, that terrible, terrible impression was why I chose the pick I did on my breakdown for Rafael Dos Anjos. So when you see that pick, just think Frankenberry. All right. Anyways, but I think he's gonna. I think he's gonna do well here. Um, price kind of going up and going down. You're looking at minus 200 for the favorite range. Dos Anjos jumping around the minus 250 range, I should say, and around the plus 225 uh, range for Tarek Safadine. Um, I guess my wallet would be mad if Safadine won, but I wouldn't as a fan. I'm, I really like Safadine. I do. I just, I just think this is Dos Anjos's. All right, next fight, uh, Dong Young Kim, Stun Gun, Colby Cummington. Um, yeah, I posted that I was excited for this fight, and I got some real varying responses. And that's not a knock on anybody. I mean, whether you're talking about analysts, media workers, hardcore fans to randoms, um, when you're talking about matches that involve grapplers, you are going to get varying opinions. Usually... Not complimentary and sadly not usually accurate either. Uh, either way, complimentary or liking it. Um, but I, I, I'm again. I'm not hating because I know. Believe me, I don't blame y'all. I know I'm in the minority for uh, <laughs> for my love for uh, you know grinding, grappling, and floats and top rides and all these other things that sound very homoerotic. But yes, I, I, I have this weird appreciation for it. Um, uh, and that is, you know, that's why I appreciate guys like, um, you know, are on those certain you know, trains, although I do, did pick against them last time, the Khabib train, you know, and stuff like that. I appreciate these types of styles, even though they might not be the most satisfying or fan-friendly. Um, these are two of the best catch wrestlers at welterweight, even though none of them have an official catch wrestling base. They apply a lot of those types of rides, pins, more pins in Kobe Covington's case, and Dong Young Kim, more of his style of rides and catches. Uh, you know, he's he's always looking for those gift wraps and and uh, <clears throat> well, I mean, judo in general, this is, it shares a lot of similarities. I mean, judo, uh, sambo, and catch wrestling—they're kind of all next door neighbors to each other um, in a lot of ways, as far as the grappling aspect of the arts go. Um, and yeah, so I'm, I'm excited for for that. But it, you know, looking at Dong and Kim, it's like I said earlier. Someone asked me my early lean, and I was like, yeah, I wasn't lying. You know, I'm, I'm high on Colby Covington, hence he's a piece for my parlay here. And I'll get to the fun flyer, and also off Zidek a prop that I played on him. But I, I do stand by saying Dong and Kim's underrated. And you look at it; he's only been, I, his only losses are being iced in the uh, first three rounds by the top three guys. One of them was because of an injury. But you can also look at it that he really, despite his long tenure fighting in the UFC top level for almost a decade, he really hasn't faced a lot of high-level grapplers or wrestlers. Really, you look at it, you know? Uh, Nate Diaz, but he wasn't a wrestler, a jiu-jitsu guy. He was a jiu-jitsu guy, not a wrestler. Damian Maya was, and Damian Maya looked to be having his, in the midst of about to start having his way when he made Dong Young Kim defend so hard that he popped his rib out when Damian Maya took him down. Because he was he was reaching so hard just to get a wizard to reestablish himself 
from Damian Maya, who was already body locked at an angle and working them out and do his backpack, which is what Dong Young Kim likes to do to people, at least the early Dong Young Kim when you know you saw Matt Brown back in UFC 88. But yeah, I mean, Tyron Woodley was the other good wrestler he fought. Now, granted, he didn't lose to Woodley because of the wrestling, but I'm just saying we haven't, you know, he, he should have dominated the guys that he dominated. It shouldn't have been a surprise, really, in hindsight. And we haven't seen him face high-level wrestler. And Colby Covington is not just high-level wrestler as far as collegiate wrestler. No, no, he's All-American, Pac-10 champion. I mean, um, Chad Mendez level almost, you know, not the NCAA finalist or anything like that. But, um, you know, he, he's up there as far as those accolades. But more importantly, he embraces, you know, although not tr- from a traditional catch wrestling base, or maybe he is, I don't know, I'm not training with the guy, but from his style, he embraces those catches which help translate his wrestling game into the cage because we see wrestlers, it's not an end-all, be-all like it used to. I always say this, it uh, doesn't always translate the way you think or the on-paper way it's going to, but Colby Covington's does. You know, he has great reactionary doubles, timing it, timing it off of his offense, timing it off of someone else's offenses and using it as a counter, working his doubles against the chain, and more importantly, chaining off, working the singles, which singles can be really good against judo because if you do it properly, like Colby Covington, where he chokes up high on the thigh because when you choke up high on the t- high on the thigh and secure that leg even if you're in the process of taking taking someone down or you're not quite getting that down isolating that leg like that um really in my opinion again i'm not i'm not an expert there's plenty of people that can be more an expert than all this i'm talking about but my opinion for what it's worth single legs those high hoisting single legs can be good against the judokas because judokas they are so good off balancing on off one leg yes we know that but they need the other leg free to do the reaping whether it's trips uchimadas um inside outside reaps they just they need that reaping leg it's the key to everything yes the posting leg the overhook maybe a wrist control some momentum yeah you need all those things too but the reaping leg is the key so when you're isolating and chaining your takedowns off of it I believe it's going to be a much more higher percentage for a guy like Covington. And Covington, though he commits his weight heavily, which is what guys like Dong Young Kim, experts who are kind of just cruising the clinch, they'll let guys kind of make mistakes. They'll let them overcommit like Covington does, except Covington does it kind of smartly. He's kind of at a 45, and he, how do I say, he knows when to re-wrestle appropriately. He knows when to push in. That's a better way to put it, re-wrestling. Um, not often do guys do it too much. Some guys do it too much. They tire themselves out. They get desperate with it, right? They get rocked, and they just keep re-wrestling and re-wrestling for shots that aren't there. Uh, Covington knows when to re-wrestle, whether it's a strike or grappling threat. He seems to measure this pretty pretty well, even though he's kind of got a hard nose and tough attitude about him. He has pretty good risk management. He really does. You even saw Barbarina, who is a good southpaw, uh, go to men and try to play the psychological games. And Kobe Covington didn't bite. And you saw at the end, Kobe Covington gave Byron Barbarina a lot of respect because people's memories are short and they don't like grapplers in general, which is probably why Covington's getting a lot of hate because he didn't, you know, he just kind of, you know, quote unquote wrestle fuck Barbarina. And I'm a big Barbarina fan. I was rooting for him there, although I picked Covington. But uh, Covington had to do that to Barbarina, you know, uh, and that's why he respected. You know, guys like that don't just give respect out. Um, that's how he respected Barbarina a lot. He knew he was a tough customer, uh, an underrated guy. And more importantly, that was the first southpaw we saw Coving- Covington face. And although I didn't think his repertoire 
Um, you know, one twos, power kicks was really going to be affected too much when going against the southpaw, especially since his emphasis is clothing and su- closing and suffocating space. Anyways, we actually saw. Well, I mean, he should be. You know, he's young. Supposed to be a stud. You know, from where it is behind closed doors. He, you know, this is the time where Covington's supposed to be making fight to fight improvements. So I don't want to sound completely surprised. But what I was surprised is how well it translated to a southpaw, especially a crafty southpaw like Barbarina, who's a good southpaw striker, who's good against other southpaws, has a lot of southpaws like Benson Henderson to work with in his gym, has weapons that really just are terrible, uh, whether you're orthodox or especially a southpaw. The check right hook is just, oh, it's awful. And, and Barbarina has such a good one, as we saw in his proctor fight after that. And... Covington, we saw him throwing his twos and rolling out properly. He was rolling out under all those check hooks and rolling out to the proper side or changing his level properly when he takes his takedowns. You know, his, his head movement, you know, he's always resetting his angles, his hands are up. He's always kind of had these fundamentals. Now we're seeing him build on it offensively. I don't think he gets enough credit because he's not doing too much flashiness and his risk management's on point. But I think that's better. You know, I don't like seeing guys go out and go and look at my improvements, but, but, but those are the guys that fall in love with it and have a higher chance of getting knocked out. Can he get knocked out here against Kim? Sure, but Kim throws a lot less, a lot more predictable, puts himself in harm's way, even though Kim is a little better about getting his head off center and his fundamentals is improved, and he has not that stereotypical wild Kim that we're, you know, kind of remembering from that John Hathaway, Eric Silveston a couple years back. Still, he is aggressive, and whether it's a measured aggressive and technical aggression, improved Kim, or whether it's the wild Kim, Colby Covington's power doubles are more than an apt threat to, if not get him down altogether, check that offense. We've seen guys get taken down or even just the threat of a takedown, slow them up, slow up their offense. And now you slow up a guy's offense who has, you know, a slightly less, in my opinion, limited repertoire than what Covington's been showing of late. And, you know, again, the wrestling and grappling threat. Um... I think it could be a long night if 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 Dong Young Kim doesn't show that he's on another level. But at 35, um, with having more injuries, uh, I have to imagine. I mean, Kim looks like he's in great shape. You know, these these Asians they age great, don't they? I'm, I'm glad I have those. You know, have, have half those genes to to keep me from uh, looking my age even. But uh, I don't know if that's gonna be mean he's aging well on the inside though, because judo kids traditionally have you know, bad back, shoulders, knees, all these things, and Dong Young Kim's had a lot. The reason why he's been inactive lately, he's been a lot of injuries, and um, you got to wonder. Maybe that's why we're not seeing him uh, more aggressive on the feet, but less aggressive when it comes to grappling. We see a lot of guys do that. Whether it's their style, they've fallen in love with their striking, or they just they can't wrestle, they can't do the judo, or they can't do the jujitsu. So they just we see these guys kind of strike to a detriment, to a slow, slow death, and. Could we see that from Dong Young Kim? Maybe I don't want. I made that sound a bit more drastic than it really is, but 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 in spirit, you know, we could be seeing that on a micro, soon to be macro level. Who knows? Um, but I don't. I don't like it. I don't like it. Even I think at the very least, Covington stifles them. But it's hard. You know, you look at things on paper, and you just have your opinions based on who they faced and what you remember. But I could be wrong here myself. But the one thing I do pride myself on is kind of the reads when it comes to grapplers. I don't think, you know, um, just from being in gym, in the gym myself, seeing it myself, and, of course, seeing it now through a lens, through this job, um, I feel like I, I've, I've got a 
not the best read. I'm not going to be say, say that by any means, but a better read than most as far as grapplers go. And man, there's a lot to like about Covington and his risk management is also better on the ground. And I think, uh, I think there's a high possibility he, uh, he, he cooks Dong Young Kim. I think Dong Young Kim, whether he can get Covington in trouble in that first round. The first round is going to be the scariest for Covington, obviously. You look where Dong Young Kim gets his finishes, where he's most dangerous. It's that first round. But whether or not Dong Young Kim can get Covington in trouble in that first round, I could totally see him selling out on something hard and then being tired, regardless whether he comes close or not. And that's why I listed the third round flyer plus 1,700. Props that usually average up around... 1200 or 13 but I, this is the most tempting third round one and it was a high price or a high high, high prices in a good way uh, Colby Covington round three you put a quarter unit plus 1700 um, and then I also played a little bit of juice in the minus I think 120 or 130 range earlier this week uh, or it's Covington by decision because that is the most likely outcome he is the final piece to the parlay and not the final prop we still have one more to list in that regard uh Let's get to the co-main event. Marcin Tabura, minus 240. Andre Arlovsky, plus 200. Oh, by the way, Dong Young Kim, 2-1 against UFC, uh, fellow UFC Southpaws. Colby Covington, 1-0 against UFC, fellow UFC Southpaws. But yes, Andre Arlovsky, big fan of Arlovsky since back in the day. One of my first fa- favorite heavyweights, man. But he hasn't evolved his game, essentially. Got the c- crosses and uppercut continuums, which could be live off the counter offensively as he throws him against Tabora. You know, he still has that power that's going to be live here. He's got good takedown defense that can make this a, a staring match. That I'm, I, I get why people are high on Deborah. I'm high on him too, even though he's not on the avoid and not on the piece for parlay. He is on that second tier. He is on a, a couple of my parlays for sure. I'm high on him here. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying I don't think I don't know if it's a guaranteed finish. Um, I might have played some juice on the inside the distance there because Andre Arlovsky has been stopped and dropped uh, in his last six fights. It's not good. It's a clear trend there. Tabora, his trend is moving upward and his striking works well. Like a lot of those Eastern European and Russian kickboxers works well off the lead foot. I think his teeps are going to, front kicks and teeps that he's throwing a lot more of, I think those are going to have play here. We see those land a lot on Arlovsky. Um, you know, that led to his knockout against Alistair Overeem. Look for that. Of course, look for the typical uh, switch kick, smooth switch kicks follow-up, you know, kind of like Rashid Magomedov or um, the other Magomedov heavyweight guy, Ruslan, uh, throws. Marcin Deborah does similar setups. Uh, and he'll even throw. He's one of the few heavyweights where he'll actually throw like a karate-style hammer fist. I don't know if his like kickboxing coach comes from a karate background, but he'll straight up throw hammer fists at dudes. Um, or cast his punches. So, right hands typically do well against Orlovsky, who retracts his, you know, kind of dips low, kind of stagnates. Weird, shows really bad signs. Not a shot fighter yet, but getting to that stage and retracts his hands low. I think Tabora hits him. Tabora, uh, I don't know if Tabora gets him down. Tabora is underrated wrestling, but Orlovsky, you know, one of the best defenders, 85% uh, underrated takedown defense. But if he can't get those outside reaps or if he gets rocked, I could see Tabora getting on top in that instance. And there, Tabora is just... He's one of the, be- the best back takers at heavyweight in the UFC right now. Um, really smooth transitions. I mean, you can even go back just to his N1 days to see that. You don't have to look to his recent fights, which he does well with. Um, floats them out, punches. Just real smooth. Real smooth. He has that kind of Fedor vibe to him because he's a chubbier dude. 
real pale, but kind of you know moves deceptively fast, real deceptive get-ups. I don't see ground stands as lasting long if it does touch the ground, and if they do, I guarantee you Tabor will be the man in control. Holofsky's not going for his heel hooks and arm bars like he, he used to. You know, he's not doing that stuff. Uh, you know, like when he first came in, you know, almost 20 years ago, it feels like, in the UFC and hits that arm bar. Uh, yeah, the name's escaping me, but he, he does almost like a Ronda Rousey-esque arm bar, like a borderline, uh, what Ronda Rousey hit on Kat Zingano, you know, Arlovsky's doing as a heavyweight, but that guy's long gone, you know? Uh, anyways, good luck if you played it. Uh, I did, so my wallet will be happy, but the fan in me will be sad, because I think Arlovsky's going down for a fifth time in a row now, is it? Oh, Jesus. All right, main event time, Holly Holm, minus 550 versus Besh Cohea, plus 425. Um, you know me, I've been a fader of Holly Holm for a minute now, but there was no reason to fade Holly Holm here. In fact, I think she does more than her usual decision, and I think she gets the finish. Uh, Betch is underrated. Um, in the sense that she's improving. She's adding fundamentals. She's keeping her feet more uh, underneath her, although it didn't seem that too hard when you have a person kind of waddles like a penguin. Not trying to make fun of you, Betch, but let's just be honest. Um, um, but yeah, uh, she, she has made improvements, and not just in her post-ring celebration dancing that people seem to be a fan of, but <laughs> she's throwing her jabs. She's showing more striking fundamentals. Um, you know, she's still... She's not being as aggressive on the ground, so it's hard to tell where her improvements are, but she's doing better at stifling in the clench. Strong underhook awareness, turning fighters away, framing with her forearm and circling away, doing little things like that that, that home will like to do. Um, for these reasons, these girls are kind of good at counter-clenching. I think that we're not going to see too much ground stanzas. Uh, I think we might see both girls go for takedowns at the end of rounds. To, but they'll be just to kind of win win uh win rounds i don't think holmes gonna be selling out uh with izzy martinez in her head which izzy martinez i don't know i'm sure he's a great guy but to me just from my doing my over analyticalness when i study all these fight fighters he seems like he's almost over enthusiastic definitely turned yair rodriguez off that way that's what he stated and kind of looking back you can kind of see that kind of mixed reviews with the pettis brothers from what it looks like and he seems kind of like an overly abrasive coach in the corner can imagine, you know, like maybe he's one of those guys in the year. I'm, I don't, I don't know. I'm not trying to trash talk the guy. I'm just, just saying from what I kind of see. And I almost, you know, and some criticisms because you saw Holm overly wrestling Durand to me, and you know, she should have won that fight. You know, in hindsight, by the way, I went back to watch, and yeah, it was more egregious in the second watch for what it's worth. And you know, it was. I, I do think it should have been Holm. You know, 48-47 with at least one point takeaway in that 48-47 or. 48, 47, I forget, 46, 47, or 47, yeah, you know what I'm saying. Should have been a point takeaway, should have been for home, but neither here nor there. Home had a chance to make it more decisive when she hurt Durand and me toward the end, but decided to wrestle, and you kind of hear in the corners, Izzy Martinez is pushing for that, and even in the fifth round, where even though she should be winning, and even if you uh, had an op optimistic head about the scorecards, you still should be pushing for home to strike, make it emphatic, if not go for a finish. And suddenly Izzy was pushing takedowns, and you can see Winklejohn, because, you know, he, if, if anybody's going to get emotional about it, it's going to be Holly Holm. There's that father-daughter vibe going on there, too. So you could, you could see him get real defensive over his fighter and go just kind of, he didn't like physically like put his back to block somebody out and cold shoulder them out of the conversation, but it almost felt like Winklejohn was doing so with his words by going somewhere along the lines of like, yeah, 
just knock them out. We're going to knock them out this round. You know, totally giving the complete opposite advice that was just given, which I agree. Winkle John had the right advice. And then you hear Winkle John, not very good at uh, poker face <laughs> on certain things. And here I'm on Ariel's uh, MMA hour and was talking about, uh, you know, kind of alluding to that going, yeah, too many voices in our head. We're getting back to the old things. And, you know, da-da-da-da. So they're going to be going for the knockout, which bodes well for my prop that I took, TKO plus... Uh, 136 again, another half unit, all half half units except for the quarter unit fun flyer, um, on home because I think she gets finds it late, uh, setting up her head kicks, um, but um, but yeah, the the thing is I I don't expect too much changes though from home because, again, not trying to uh, hate on Winkle John or hate on another coach that you know probably knows you know, knows more about fighting, forgot more about fighting than I know. Or could know, but, um, sorry, that's my phone. Brian, I thought you were taking a break this week, man. What are you doing? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no break. Uh, last week kind of got me fired back up. I missed it. I, I couldn't keep my, I also learned that it's just, it was more hasslesome to, to pretend that I'm not going to do the work and just jump back into it. So whatever, I wanted to do it. We're back, baby. That's funny, though. But yeah, I don't. I don't expect much adjustments from home. I don't expect we're going to see too much of a different girl. Um, not to hate on Winkle John or anything. I forgot more about fighting than I know, but see a lot of the same things. You know, you listen to the corner. Ponies are there all day, which is that you know his famous oblique kick. Um, and uh, you know, home just kind of does her thing. She's kind of a play runner. She circles left to reset, runs right for the angles, so on and so forth. She's going to have to watch for the right hand, as per usual in the matchups, whether it's check right. From Chevchenko from a southpaw, counter right from a Muay Thai style, which I think will be suitable for Kohea here, like we saw Duranami hit, or yeah, just the counter rights. We also saw Pennington start to hone in by the third round. Um, you know, Kohea definitely has a path, but just athleticism, speed. Although she's improved, the footwork's not going to be there, and I think she's going to wear down. We see that. We see her wear down. Her guard starts to lower. She makes a little less uh, poor decisions and I think was rocked maybe in the last two of the third rounds of the fight. One of them was by a question mark kick by Marion Renault. So I really could see Holly Holm having success. I mean, she just had, yeah, I hate to put the and together, but yeah, the question mark kick was definitely there, um, you know, as far as puzzle pieces go. So I think she gets it done. Put a small uh, bit on there. Um, Maybe put one home in one fun parlay, but no, no, I don't think I did because it's way too high of a price, minus 550 in that range. It was higher early on in the week, which definitely kept me away earlier in the week when I already knew I had my pick. So, yeah, not a good card for betting. Um, good luck if you are. Uh, let's see, anything in this? No, we covered everything. Sorry about that uh, Southpaw rant. Hope you enjoyed it though. <laughs> that's what you're going to get sometimes on the Protect Your Neck podcast you're going to get random film rants where I get impassioned about my opinions on, our, on screenwriting and, and, and storytelling so until next time don't throw someone out of a window until you tell them why first don't switch to Southpaw unless someone kills your wife and always protect your neck <laughs>